Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, Haynes Creek. Good to be with you today. Uh, as Johnny said, my name is Travis. I'm the pastor here. It's good to be worshiping with you this morning. And uh, before we get started, got a couple of announcements. Just want to make sure we're all aware of, and then we will jump in uh, for what we have today. But uh, as a reminder, we've been announcing this for a couple weeks, but Operation Christmas Child, we are collecting boxes for them again this year. We are going to collect boxes up until and through November 19th. So bring your boxes by Sunday, November 19th. Um, we sent out emails uh, with links to Operation Christmas Child website for directions and what to put in the box and all that good stuff. So this is an incredible ministry to partner with. Not only do you have the opportunity to send out Christmas gifts and necessities to kids uh, in impoverished areas all across the world, you are sending the greatest gift of all, which is the message and the hope of Jesus Christ. Uh, so it's a great opportunity to partner with them this year. So grab one of those boxes back there, fill a box of your own, and again, bring it back by Sunday, November 19th, and we will get those sent off. And then also, um, most of you have gotten the email and RSVP'd and all that good stuff. It's also been in our uh, weekly email as a church, but our very own Johnny, who's now doing worship with the kids, he left, but he's getting married soon, he's getting married, so we as a church are throwing him and his future bride-to-be Olivia a wedding shower after church today at Asbury Street Park, so hopefully you RSVP'd for that, sign up for that, if not, just come on over, we've got plenty of food, I'm, I'm sure, I hope, if, whatever, we'll figure it out, y'all, just come, we'll celebrate Johnny, we'll have a good time, again, that will be after service today at Asbury Street Park, um, but please uh, help us tear down and put everything back before you go over there. Um, but just kidding, we want to celebrate Johnny well today, so make sure you join us for that. And uh, so this, this past week was, was Halloween. Halloween. Anybody walk around, those of you kids, walk around, trick-or-treat, anything like that? Am I literally the only one here that did that? Okay, cool. All right, some other folks. Cool. Well, I've got little kids. I've got an 8-year-old, a 7-year-old, and a 2-year-old, and they love dressing up, and they obviously they're kids. They love candy, right? Who doesn't love Candy. So this Halloween, we, we dressed up and we went out and we did the whole trick-or-treating thing. And this was our first year doing it in our new neighborhood where we live. And I didn't realize this, but our neighborhood like goes all out. Like people drive in to walk through our neighborhoods. There was a ton of people. There was like 10 houses that were giving out full candy bars. Like what in the world is happening? What, what is going on here? This is crazy. We hit the jackpot, right? Like they, they loved it. And, uh, and this year, uh, we did a, a family dress-up theme, much to my objection. Even as a little kid, I didn't like dressing up, but our kids have been really into Mario this year, so I wanted to dress up as Mario. So Zayden, my son, loves Luigi, so he dressed up as that. Livy was Princess Peach, and Mila, I don't guys know about Mario stuff, but she was the little dinosaur Yoshi. She had this little costume, super cute. Uh, my wife was Toad, and then I had the, the luck of dressing up as Mario. Don't worry, there's no video evidence of this, so please don't ask my wife, because she doesn't have any pictures, all right? So there's no proof that this happened other than me telling you this happened. But our kids loved it. They had a good time. They were running around with all their friends, even Mila. Like, she was walking with me the whole time. She's like, can we get more candy? Can we go that house? Can we trick-or-treat? I was like, yeah, sweetie, let's go. So she loved it. She's been talking about it ever since. But, but when my kids dress up, right, like, so Zayden dressing up as Luigi doesn't make him Luigi, right? Like, we're not so silly enough to believe that just because you dress up as something different than you, that it, that it changes everything about you, right? Like they're just pretending. It's just imaginative. They're just having fun. But when we come to scripture and we see Jesus coming down, like he's not playing dress up. He's not playing pretend. Like we saw last week, Jesus has his full deity, his full divine nature, and then adds his human nature to that. He didn't like put on a human costume and come to earth. And when Jesus puts on that humanity, he doesn't come down with any less power, right? He comes down to save us. And that's why 
Look, this is why we're spending so much time talking about Jesus. That's why when we come to Philippians chapter 2 and we see this incredible, beautiful passage about who Jesus is and all that he's done and, and why we wanted to just slow down even more and walk through this piece by piece is because Jesus is the most important person for all of us. For every single person, Jesus is the most important person, regardless of what you believe, because it's Jesus alone who determines our eternal state. So when we started this out a couple weeks ago, we said the most important question any of us could ask is, who do you believe Jesus is? What do you believe about Jesus? Who do you say that he is? And right, thankfully, the Bible doesn't leave us to wonder and question and come up with our own thoughts and, and ideas about who Jesus is. No, we're clearly told in this passage is yet another reminder. So that's why we're slowing down. We're taking our time because we want to get Jesus right. We want to be clear on who Jesus is and what he's done. And that's why we're spending so much time in Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to continue that today. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to open up to Philippians chapter 2. Uh, we're going to be doing what we've been doing the last couple of weeks, right? We're walking slowly through verses 5 through 11. So a couple weeks ago, we walked through verse 6, and then last week, verse 7, and then this week, we're going to camp out in verse 8. So if you have your Bible, awesome, Philippians chapter 2. If not, you can follow on the screen behind me. We also have free Bibles on our table. Please grab one of those before you head out today. Uh, but I'm going to pray for us, and then uh, we will read Philippians chapter 2 here. So let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you for this day, Lord. We thank you for this opportunity to come as your people and gather together in fellowship and in service and in worship to you, Lord. It's such a gift, Jesus. So we thank you for that. Lord, I pray over our time today, Lord, would you open up our hearts and our minds and our ears to what you would have for us, Lord. We want to hear and learn from you, Jesus. Nobody needs my words or my thoughts, Lord. We need you, Jesus, so, so speak to us. Lord, preach to us. Teach us your word today. Help it sink down deep in our hearts that it affects how we live our lives uh, going out of today, Lord. So we, we pray that you, you bless our time today, Lord. Teach us, speak to us, Lord. Lead us into deeper faith, trust, and love of you. And it's your name we pray. Amen. All right, so Philippians chapter 2, I'm going to do what we've been doing. I'm going to read the whole passage, so 5 through 11. Again, this just helps us as we kind of zoom in, not even like from forest to tree. Like we're getting into like a leaf of a branch, right? Like that's how detailed we're going into this. So I don't want us to get lost in that. So that's why we're reading the whole passage each week to kind of help us keep it in context, right? That's so important. So starting in verse 5, it says this. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we said, you know, we, we've been focusing, you know, line by line here. So we, we looked at verse 6, and we saw verse 6 a couple weeks ago that, that tells us, that teaches us that Jesus is fully God, right? Fully God. He is not less than. He is not something other than. He is not a created being. No, he is 
God, eternal per second person of the Trinity, right? He's God. And then we saw last week that, that when he comes to earth, when he goes through the incarnation to leave heaven and come to earth, he takes human form, right? He adds humanity to his divinity, right? He's still one person, two natures, fully God, fully man. That's who Jesus is. And, and we saw last week the beginnings of why he came, right? He came not to, as Mark 10, 45 tells us, not to serve, but, but to be, or to, not, not to be served, but to serve, right? That's why Jesus came. He came to give his life for ours. So we're going to dig into this. And again, we're going to focus here on verse eight. So let me, let me read it. We kind of stopped uh, towards the end of verse seven. So let me read verses seven through eight, and that's going to frame our conversation today. So verse seven again says, instead he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And that's where we stopped last week. And it continues. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Okay, so just as a reminder, what we've been doing as we're walking through this, kind of our basic outline that frames our conversation is we want to answer three questions. So we want to ask, what does this verse teach us about who Jesus is, right? The person of Jesus, his nature, his characters, his, his attributes. What does it teach us about who Jesus is? Second, we want to ask, what does this teach us about the work of Jesus, what Jesus has done or is doing or will one day do, right? So what does it teach us about what Jesus does? And then we want to ask, okay, well, what does all that mean for me as a believer living here in 2023? So again, that's going to frame our conversation today. So first question, what does this teach us about who Jesus is? If you're taking notes, write this down. First point, it tells us that Jesus was perfect. Jesus was perfect. Jesus was perfect. And it says, when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. So when Jesus lived here on the earth, when he lived as a man, he lived a 100% fully perfect life. He was sinless. Never sinned even once. And I think sometimes, especially if we've grown up in church, we say that, and it's like, yeah, of course. So, yeah, yeah, Jesus was perfect, right? Never killed anybody. Never did any of the really bad, evil, wicked stuff that people have done throughout the centuries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, like, he, he never even sinned a little bit, right? Like, he, he never got uh, sinfully angry, right? Like, we do see Jesus get angry, but it is this righteous, godly anger. It's not this, this sinful, selfish anger that we so often get caught up in. Jesus never once got impatient, right? Like, how often do we get impatient? Y'all, I was messing with our check-in printer like five minutes ago, and it wasn't working. I was ready to take that thing and chuck it all the way down the hallway. Now, thankfully, Blake was there. He's like, Travis, walk away, man. Walk away. I got this. So I did, and thankfully, he fixed it because, you know, he's awesome. But like, how often do we get angry or impatient over silly little things, right? Things that don't ultimately matter, he never hurt anyone, not just physically, but like never hurt anybody emotionally, never, never, never stole, never cheated, never looked at a woman lustfully, never said something he shouldn't. Y'all think about it. How often do we say something like, oh, I want to take that back right now. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. Did not mean to say that. Jesus never did that. Never did that. He never told a lie, even a little white lie that we think, yeah, nobody's going to know and that doesn't really matter. No, Jesus never did that. Never did that. He never gossiped about somebody. He never gossiped about somebody and then framed it as a prayer request for that person, right? Surely none of us have ever done that. He never did anything to make himself look better than somebody else. He never manipulated anybody. He was never selfish. He never put his needs above somebody else. Like, how often 
are we selfish? How often do we think of ourselves first and foremost, then we think of ourselves second and third and fourth and fifth, and then maybe down to tenth we'll think about somebody else? How often are we selfish? He never loved, pursued, lived for anything other than God. Jesus never sinned. He was perfect in his life. That's incredible. That's amazing. But last week we said that Jesus, when he, when he comes as a man, he came to be a servant, right? We're told he comes as a servant. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for ours. So Jesus perfectly humbled himself as the perfect servant of God, perfectly humbled himself to God's will, not his own, right? We talked about that last week, that even in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is praying hours before he goes to the cross, he's like, Lord, let me follow your will, your will and not mine. Like, clearly Jesus was like, man, if I had my way, like, I might not do this, but, but let it not be my way. Let it be your way, Jesus. Let it, let it be your way, God. That's what Jesus does as the perfect servant. He was fully and perfectly obedient to God and God's will and God's ways. Perfectly obedient, perfect life. Now, why is that? Why, why is that important? Why, why does this matter? Well, to answer that, we got to go all the way back to creation. See, when God created the world, he created everything, including mankind, including Adam and Eve, and, and everything that was in the world at that time. He created everything in perfection. Everything was perfect. Creation was perfect. The garden was perfect. Adam and Eve were perfect. And God said, you, you, you've got one rule, right? One rule. You can have anything and everything. You can have anything and everything that you want except for this one tree. Don't eat of this one tree. And if you eat of that tree, bad things are going to happen, right? This wasn't a, like, cruelty of God. Like, he was trying to help them out by doing this. It was an act of love when he said, hey, don't touch that because it's bad. It's like what I do with my two-year-old, like, when the stove's on. Don't touch the stove. That's bad, right? Like, I'm not loving her less by not letting her touch something. I'm loving her more by saying, no, don't do that because it's harmful. That's what God's doing here with, with this one rule. It, it, it's harmful. Don't do it. But then we see in Genesis 3, Satan comes along disguised as a servant, and he's like, hey, did God really say don't, don't eat of that tree? And I'm like, well, yeah, God said not to. He's like, yeah, but you, do you know why he said that? Oh, well, I don't know. You just said to. But Satan says, well, if you eat of that tree, you're going to become like God. Now, what that means is, is when you eat of that, you'll be like God, and therefore you do not need God anymore. You don't need God anymore. And Adam and Eve, man, that sounds great. I don't need God anymore. I can do that. I can be fully independent. Sounds great. Let me do that. So they eat of the tree. They break God's one rule. And in that moment, with that decision, sin, enter, sin enters the world. Sin enters the world, and it filters down from Adam to the rest of humanity and all of creation. Everything is infected and corrupted with sin because of that moment. And God was clear about the consequences of sin. He said, if you do that, you'll die. Death comes into the world as a result of sin. He says this in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2, 16 through 17, he says this to Adam. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat of it, you will certainly die. If they ate of that tree, death comes into the world, and that's exactly what happens. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. The wages, the consequences, what we store up and earn as a result of our sin is death. 
It's death. Romans 1.18, for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So not only is death a consequence of sin, God's wrath is a consequence of sin. And then Jesus says this in Matthew 25, talking about the eternal state for everyone. Y'all, everyone is going to exist and live forever. This life is not the end of our story. When we die, we continue on for eternity, and there's only two options. There's eternity with Jesus, or there's eternity in hell forever. And Jesus says this, Matthew 25, 46, And they, the unrighteous, those that do not believe in Jesus, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So not only is a consequence of sin, death, now we die because of sin. Not only is it God's wrath upon us because of sin, but if we persist in our sin and disbelief in Jesus, when we die and we come before Jesus, the great judge, we will be sentenced to hell forever, eternal torment and separation from God. That's what our sin brings us. That's the consequences of sin. And look, the Bible makes it clear that we are all sinners. We're all sinners. We are all sinners by our own choices, and we are sinners by nature. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, that word all means all. Every single one of us, myself included, is a sinner. And that word for sin means to, to kind of miss the mark. That's the idea behind it. But it's not like you were aiming and you just kind of were a little off of center. No, it's like if the target's there, you're over here aiming this way. That's the idea of sin. We willingly choose to go away from God and towards sin. We are sinners by choice. We are also sinners by nature. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. We're going to get into this a little bit more in a minute, but what that teaches us, one thing, is that Adam... As the first human, the first of mankind, he is our representative. So he represented all of mankind before God. And because he sinned, all of mankind after that are sinners. That sin of Adam is applied to each and every one of us so that we are born with a sin nature. Meaning we are born bent towards sin and away from God. This is why I don't have to teach my two-year-old to be a sinner. Right? Like just the other, yesterday, she grabbed a toy and just whacked her brother with it. That's not what we do in our household. It's not like she just sees us whacking each other with toys all day long. No. She just did it because she's a wicked little sinner. She's an evil little sinner just like all of us. Right? We don't have to learn to sin. It's just part of who we are. We are sinners by nature. So Adam was our representative. His sin is filtered down and applied to each of us. So we are sinners by choice. We are sinners by nature. And because of that, y'all, because of that, what we deserve are the consequences of sin. We deserve death. We deserve God's wrath. We deserve eternal separation and torment away from God and in hell for all of eternity. That's what we deserve. And look, the only way to not face those consequences is to meet God's standard. And God's standard is perfection. Perfection. God's standard is not, did you try hard? Did you have good intentions? Did you, at the end of your life, did, you, did your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds? That's not God's standard. God's standard is perfection. 
And we just said very clearly, we don't meet that. Look, you don't need me. You don't need scripture to know that you are not perfect. And if you didn't know that, now, now you do. Now you know. We are not perfect. None of us are perfect. We can't meet God's standard. Therefore, we deserve the consequences of sin. We can't reach that standard, right? But, but Jesus did. And that's why his life matters. That's why his perfect, sinless life matters. He met God's requirements. He met God's standard. He lived a perfect life. And it's not like he just had an easy life with no struggles, and therefore, of course, it was perfect. Like, what did he have going on? No, Hebrews 4.15 tells us, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Jesus faced all sorts of temptations, temptations that we probably could never understand the weight of. And yet, he was without sin. He was without sin. 1 John 3, 5 says, You know that he was revealed so that he might take away sins, and there is no sin in him. No sin in Jesus. 1 Peter 2, 22, He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. Jesus' own words, Matthew 5, 17, Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. Jesus came to fulfill all of God's demand, requirements, standards for perfection. And he did it. He did it. He was perfect. He was perfect. And because of that perfect life, because of what we've already seen, that Jesus is fully God, fully man, and now we see that he was fully perfect, Jesus becomes our new representative. No longer do we have to be identified in Adam. We can be identified in Christ. This is what Romans 5 continues to say. Romans 5, 18 through 21 says, so then, as through one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone. So that's again referencing Adam through his trespass, through his sin. We're all condemned. So also through one righteous act, there is justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So what this is teaching us is when we put our faith in Jesus, when we trust in him for salvation, we go from under the representation of Adam to now under the representation of Christ. No longer are we guilty and condemned because of our sin, but Jesus gives us his perfection, his righteousness, so that now when God sees us, we're not viewed as a sinner. We are viewed through the lens of Jesus' perfection and righteousness. He's our new representative. We are now identified by him and in him. That's why this matters. That's why this is so significant. So through faith in Jesus, his righteousness is applied to us. So we see that Jesus was perfect. We also see that this verse continues, right? It doesn't just talk about Jesus' life, but it talks about his death. And that brings us to the second thing that we want to ask, right? What does this teach us about what Jesus has done? It teaches us this, number two. Jesus became the perfect sacrifice. Jesus became 
the perfect sacrifice. So he lived a perfect life. And then he died. And he died a perfect death. This is what verse 8 again says. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Not only did Jesus live the perfect life, but he died as the perfect substitute and sacrifice for us. And I love that Paul emphasizes here that, that he died on a cross. Like this wasn't just an ordinary death. And, and we kind of lose the, the idea behind that in our culture because nobody's crucified anymore, right? We don't see that happening very often anymore, if at all. So, but during this time, that was the worst possible death sentence you could have gotten. Death by, by crucifixion. Because it was horrifically painful. It took a long time to happen. Like, you don't die from pain or blood loss, typically, in the crucifixion. You, you died from suffocating on your own blood and lack of oxygen. That's a horrible way to die. And you are displayed on a cross, not in private, not behind a building somewhere, not away from people. No, in, in front of everybody. It was a painful, horrific, shameful, and humiliating way to die. Roman citizens, like in Philippi, they're Roman citizens. Man, Roman citizens could not be crucified because that's how bad they were. Like, man, we can't do that to our own people. That is bad. We can't do that to our own. That's how bad this was. I mean, if you, if you took a, a, a first century Philippian Roman citizen at that time and you brought them here to church with us one day and they saw all those cross necklaces, they'd be horrified. Like, what is wrong with you people? Why are you wearing a death tool around your neck? Like, that's insane. What is wrong? You guys are, are crazy. Disgusting people, right? Like, that's what that would have been their thought. Like, that's how the cross was viewed. And this horrific, shameful, painful, humiliating way to die. That was the cross. And yet, that's where Jesus goes. That's what Jesus' perfect life led him to, was, was death, even death on a cross. So I need to ask some, some important questions here. Well, what, what happened with Jesus' death? What happened while he was on the cross? Well, the Bible is clear. When Jesus dies, he's not dying for himself. He's dying for us. On the cross, Jesus takes our sin and he takes our place. Romans 5.8 says this. If I can find my notes, there it is. Romans 5.8 says this. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He dies for us. He dies our death. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, the perfect one, gets on the cross, and on the cross God takes our sin and puts it on Jesus. He dies in our place. He dies because of our sins. Not his own. He was perfect and innocent. But on the cross, he takes on our death. He takes on our sins. 1 Peter 2, 24, he says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. And then Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on the tree. So Jesus takes our place on the cross. He dies our death. He takes on our sins. The Bible makes that clear. Not, not, not his sins, not just some people's sins, but, but, but all our sins. He takes on all our sins on the cross. He becomes 
our substitute. Again, he's our representative, right? He takes our place. He dies our death for our sins. So we have to ask, well, well, why? Why does Jesus have to do that? Why does Jesus have to die? Well, again, we've, we've said the consequences of sin is what? It's death, right? It's death. Where there is to be forgiveness of sins or remission of sins, something or someone has to die. Hebrews 9, 22 makes this clear. It says, according to the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. All right, so let's, let's rewind and go back to the Old Testament, right? If we're familiar at all with the Old Testament, they had the temple and there was the priest. And what did they do at the temple? What did, they do? what did the priest do? They made sacrifices. They made sacrifices on behalf of the people. So uh, at least once a year on the Day of Atonement, what they would do is, is they would take an animal, a, a, a spotless, non-blemished animal, right? A perfect little lamb or a goat or a bull or a ram, some kind of animal, and that animal would become the people's representative. They would then represent the people before God, and that animal would be sacrificed for their sins. But the Old Testament sacrificial system is, is incredibly bloody and kind of horrific. And there's a reason for that. God wants his people to witness that innocent little animal that's done nothing wrong die and be killed in their place. It should have been a regular, frequent reminder for the people that man, my, my sin is so horrible that this innocent little animal had to die so that I wouldn't die. It was a reminder of our great sin and God's great love and grace towards us. That he didn't just kill us all the minute we sinned, right? Like, that's what we deserve. He'd be fully just and perfect if that's how we did things. But he doesn't. He allowed for a system for this animal to take the place of us and take on our sins so that God killed that animal for our sins instead of us. Now, the reason we had to see so many animals being sacrificed over and over and over again in the Old Testament is because an animal is a bad representative for us, right? We can't fully identify with that animal. That animal can't fully identify with us. We're human beings, and that animal is not a human being. It's, it's a goat or a ram or a bull or whatever it was, right? It's not a good representative. And that's why Jesus had to be fully God and fully man, so that he could fully represent us before God, so that he could fully take our place on the cross. This is what Romans 9, 13 through 14 says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkling those who are defiled sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God? Right? Jesus is not like those other animals. He is our representative. He fully identifies with us as mankind so that when he dies, we don't have to keep offering sacrifices over and over and over again because he's the perfect representative. He's the perfect substitute and therefore can make the perfect sacrifice. That's what Jesus has done for us. Hebrews 7, 26 through 27 puts it this way. It says, for this is the kind of high priest we need, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for their own sins, then for those of the people. He did this once for all time when he offered himself. 
It's because Jesus is our perfect substitute and because he makes the perfect sacrifice. He doesn't have to continually die on the cross over and over and over again, even though we continue to sin, right? It's a once for all, for all of our sins. That's what Jesus does. He satisfies all the requirements of God's demands. He lives the perfect life. And then he takes on the full payment for our sins. He takes on God's wrath, and he dies the death that we deserved. So what this verse is teaching us is that Jesus, Jesus lived the life that you and I never could. And he died the death that you and I deserved. He lived the life that we never could. And he died the death that we deserved. He fully takes our place. He is our perfect representative, our perfect substitute, and our perfect sacrifice. That's what Philippians 2 verse 8 teaches us about who Jesus is and about what he has done. Now, now what, is that, what does that mean for us, right? And this is where we're, we'll start to wrap things up. Where, what does this mean for me living as a Christian in 2023, right? What does it mean for us? Well, it reminds us uh, of three truths that I want to end our time today with. First, it reminds us that we are to live a life of obedience to God. It reminds us that we are to live a life of obedience, just like Jesus did. Jesus came and submitted himself to his Father's will and his Father's ways, and in that, he gives us the example to follow. We, as we, if we are believers, we have put our faith in Jesus, we are to live a life obedient to God and his ways, not our own. This is what Jesus says in Luke 9, 23. He says this, then, then he said to them all, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. What he's telling us there is we're to live a life following him, walking in obedience to him. But it's also, he's calling us not just to a life of obedience, but to a life of death. Every moment, every day, we are to kill off our own selfish and sinful desires and ways and follow Jesus. He calls us to a life of death. He doesn't call us, say, hey, Travis, come follow me up until the point where you kind of disagree with things. If you ever disagree, man, it's, it's all good. It's cool. You know, we can agree to disagree. You do your own thing. It's all good, right? Follow me up until the point where, you know, if it gets too hard, if, it, if there's too much cost, if it's too much sacrifice, well, then you know what? We'll just call it even. It's all good. Don't worry about it. No problem. That's not what Jesus says. He says, if you're going to follow me, deny yourself and pick up that death instrument. Pick up that cross and put yourself on it every single day. Die to yourself. Die to your sin. Die to your selfish ways and desires and follow me. And look, here's the truth. We don't, we don't live a life of obedience. We don't obey Jesus and follow him out of some obligation or, or force or fear or, 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 or trying to earn something, some extra love or, or reward from Jesus. If we live a good life, he's like, oh man, gold star for Travis, way to go this week. Like, no, we don't, we don't obey for those reasons. No, we obey because we truly believe, we actually truly believe that his ways are better. That his ways, Jesus' ways, lead to life and away from death, right? Remember the consequences of sin. The consequences of sin is death and destruction and all sorts of bad things. And remember, God doesn't give us rules and things for us to follow out of some, you know, lack of love towards us or trying to withhold from us. No, he's trying to save us. He's saying, look, if you go that way towards sin, it's bad for you. It's dangerous. It's destructive. 
it might feel good for a little bit. It might be awesome for a little bit, but it is not going to end that way. And Jesus is trying to save us from that. And he says, no, come follow me because his ways are the way to life. His ways are the way to satisfaction and joy and fulfillment, not only in this life, but in the life to come. So we obey Jesus not out of obligation, not out of force or fear or trying to earn. We obey because we truly believe his ways are better. We truly believe his ways lead to life. And look, we're not going to obey perfectly, right? Like, let's just be open and honest right here. Like, we're not going to obey perfectly. We're going to mess up. We're going to stumble. We're going to fall. We're going to sin. This is the Christian life until Jesus comes back or we die to be with him. It is this daily battle of, of my ways over Jesus, right? My desires are Jesus. It's this constant struggle. And there's going to be times where we chase after our sin, where we, we turn away from Jesus and we go back to our old ways. And what's the message of Christ in those moments? What does the gospel message of Jesus teach us about those moments? Is it, man, when you mess up, Jesus is like, how dare you? I, you? You call yourself a Christian? Really? Really? That was awful. You're terrible. How dare you? I can't believe that. No, it's not this message of, of shame and guilt and disapproval. No, it is a message of, of hey, come back. Come back. Right? Come back to Jesus because his arms are always right there wide open. And look, here's the thing. When the Bible, when we sin, the Bible tells us to, to confess those sins and repent and come back to Jesus, to say no to our sin and yes to Jesus. And look, when we confess those sins to Jesus, it's not like we're going to catch him off guard. And like, oh, Travis, didn't know you did that. Didn't know you thought those things. Didn't know you said that to that person. Wow, I'm shocked. What is, what's going on? No, he already knows. He already knows. And more than that, payment has already been made for that sin. That sin is already covered by the blood of Jesus. This is what Colossians 2 tells us. Starting verse 13 says, And when you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us of all our trespasses. How much, church? I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. How much? What? Huh? Say it again, y'all. All. All our trespasses. Not some. Not only the little ones. Not if it gets too bad, it's like, oh, sorry, you're out of luck here. No, all of our trespasses, past, present, future sins, all forgiven by Jesus when we put our faith in him. So when we stumble, when we fall, we remind ourselves of that truth, that Jesus already paid the price for that sin, that there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And, and even though we were running after Jesus and we stumbled and we failed, we pick ourselves back up and we keep running to Jesus. That's the message of the gospel when we stumble in this life. It's not a message of shame or guilt. It's a message of love and forgiveness and hope. Turn back to Jesus. So it reminds us that we are to live a life of obedience. Second, it reminds us of all that Jesus did to save us. I don't know about you, but sometimes I just need that reminder of, of what the gospel actually says. Because man, unfortunately, sometimes I forget about that. Or I take it for granted. Or it doesn't hit me the way that it should every moment. Y'all... Remember what Jesus has done for us. He lived the perfect life and he died in our place. Without those two things, without his perfect life and his sacrificial uh, atonement on the cross, we are still in our sins. We are not saved. We have no hope and we will one day face the consequences for our sin. But praise be to God that Jesus lived the perfect life we never could and he died the death that we deserve. Y'all, that, that should fill us with praise and adoration and a desire to live for him even more. 
even more. That, that should stir something within our hearts when we remember the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. I love how Hebrews 7.25 puts it. He says, therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. That, that, that phrase, save completely, means to, to meet the, the highest standard of completeness. And not just a temporary level of completeness, but a forever level of completeness. Like, like Jesus doesn't do just enough to get by. He doesn't do just enough, like just beyond, just a little bit more than what's required. No, he saves completely, fully, and forever. That's what Jesus has done for us. Y'all, that, that should stir something within us. That should cause some kind of reaction, church. That should cause some joy, some worship, some excitement for Jesus. Let us not forget the gospel. Let us not forget all that Jesus has done. And then lastly, it reminds us that Jesus is our great high priest. Now, we read this passage last week, but I think it should hit a little differently from what we talked about today. This is what Hebrews 4 says, starting in verse 14. It says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Jesus is our great high priest. And not only as our high priest does he make the ultimate sacrifice for us, but, but he, he's also other thing like being our high priest means that that he's our advocate right like he's the one that stands up for us when when satan comes with his accusations and we stumble and fail and he wants to say how dare you i can't believe you'd call yourself a christian and you did that or you said that and he just wants us to sit in our guilt and our shame jesus is the one that stands up and said man get out of here with that get out of here with those lies there's no condemnation for those who are me i already took care of that that payment has already been made he's our advocate he intercedes for us we just read this in hebrews Chapter 7, verse 25, he, he always lives to make intercession for us, is, is one verse, or one translation puts it. He intercedes for us. Y'all, right now, in this very moment, Jesus is praying for us and our, on our behalf. How awesome is that? That the second person of the Trinity is constantly interceding and praying for us. That's incredible. That's amazing. And as Hebrews 4 reminds us, he, he's able to sympathize with us. Right, because he, he lived the life that, that we lived. He lived a fully human life. He went through all the temptations and all the struggles, and he came out perfect. So he knows what it's like to struggle. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to walk through the hardships of this life. He can relate to us. He can comfort us and encourage us in those moments. You know, when, we, when we come to Jesus and we draw near to him, we don't, we don't draw near to a distant, far-off God. And we draw near to our great high priest who suffered, who was tempted, who struggled, who faced the difficulties of this life and yet was without sin. He is a good God and a great high priest that we are to draw near to, to come close to, to hold tightly onto. So church, let us do that. Let us do that. For those here that are believers, let, let's hold tightly to our great high priest. If you're here and you've never put your faith in Jesus, I just want to take a moment and encourage you and, and, and ask you, let, let, let today be the day of your salvation. Don't leave today without putting your faith in Jesus. 
this talk about Jesus should, should cause some questions for you. It should cause you to wonder, man, who, who do I say Jesus is? It should cause you to wonder, well, is there more to this life? What, what happens when we die? Is this life all there is? Man, y'all, that can't be it. That can't be it. It's got to be more. The Bible tells us there's more. And if there's more, what's the way to salvation? Is it, is it left to me? I'll just be honest, man. If it's left to Travis, we're, we're all in trouble. I'm in trouble. We don't make good saviors, but Jesus does. So if you're here and you've never put your faith or your trust in Jesus, do that today. Don't leave today without talking with me or, or somebody here, right? We would love to, to answer what that looks like. What does it mean to put your faith in him? What does it mean to trust in Jesus for salvation? He's the only one that lived the perfect life. He's the only one that loves you enough to die your death, to take your place. And he's the only one who gives us salvation, who gives us freedom, who gives us eternal life, who gives us joy, peace, satisfaction, fulfillment, not just in this life, but for eternity. Put your faith in him. Church, in a moment, what we are going to do is what we do every single Sunday, right? Every single Sunday at the end of my sermon, we, we, we take a moment to worship through communion. That's why we have these tables. That's why we have the bread and the cup. And as the Bible says, we, we do this in remembrance of Jesus. When we see the bread and we see the cup, it should remind us that Jesus went to the cross, that his body was broken and his blood was shed, not because of what he's done, but because of what I've done, because of what you've done. He went there because of our sins. So when we take communion, not only is it a way to remember and worship and praise Jesus for what he's done, it, it's a way, as what Hebrews 4 says, to, to draw near to Jesus, to come close to him. So let's do that. I'm going to pray in a moment. Johnny and the band are going to come back up here, and they're going to lead us through another song. So believer in the room, take time to prepare your hearts. Maybe you need to, you're saying, man, like I, I've stepped out, right? Like I, I was living for Jesus, and now I'm like, I'm not really doing that. It's time to come back home. Come back to Jesus, right? And he doesn't stand there going, I, I knew about time you came over here. Like, let's have a talk. No, he, he does it with open arms and wants to just give you this big old hug. Like, that's what Jesus wants to do. That's the grace of Jesus. Turn back to him. Or maybe you believe you just need to sit and, and be reminded and just soak in, in the glory and the beauty of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And just remember and celebrate and worship him for his life and his death. And as you're ready, you go to the tables on either side, you eat and you drink, and we worship our good God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Before I pray, I want to end our time with Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is an incredible chapter in our Bible, and it prophesies all about what we've been talking about lately, about the coming Messiah, about Jesus, and who he would be, and, and what he would do for us. So I just want us to, to sit with these words for a moment. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 1, says, who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sickness, and he carried our pains. 
But we, in turn, regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. But he was with the rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days, and by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive, he will receive the mighty as spoil, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. Let's pray, church. Jesus, we thank you for taking on our sin. Lord, you were innocent. You were perfect. You were completely undeserving of death. And yet you willingly went there. And you did it for us, Lord, as Romans 5.8 reminded us, Lord, while we were still sinners, you died for us. And Lord, that is how you show and demonstrate your great love for us. So Jesus, we thank you for that. We thank you for your perfect life. We thank you for correcting what was done in Genesis 3, Lord for providing the way for forgiveness, for providing the way for salvation. Lord, through your death, you made payment for us. Thank you for taking our place, Jesus. Lord, I pray that this would renew in us, Lord, a, a, a sense of, of deep faith and love towards you, and that that would sink down into our hearts and lead us to a life of obedience to you, Jesus, not out of obligation, but out of love for you and gratitude for what you've done for us. Lord, I pray for anybody here who may not know you, may not have put their faith in you, Lord. Would you save them? Would you rescue them, Lord? Only you can do that. Salvation belongs to you, Jesus. Would you rescue and save and do what only you can do, Jesus? So we love you. We praise you. We lift high your name today. In your name we pray.